HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Cutting the Curd. Over the next couple weeks, we have some great interviews I did on location at Crown Finish Caves in Brooklyn. On this episode, we have sisters from the Abbey of Regina Lattis in Connecticut. This is Greg Glaze. I'm recording live from the Crown Finish Caves in Bergen Street in Brooklyn. Um, we're really lucky. We have some fantastic people here today to talk and educate us about crystallography and monastic cheese making. Um, I have, I'm sitting here with two sisters who are also sisters, and they're sisters, if that makes any sense. Um, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself for our audience? I am Sister Teresa Benedicta, and I am a novice at the Abbey of Regina Laudis. Uh, my name is Lois, and I'm a postulant at the Abbey of Regina Laudis. Nice. Fantastic. Um, so when did you gals decide to become cheesemakers? Well, I, um, I guess in 2010, I did an, an internship in, at the Abbey, um, a year-long internship, and I started making the Bethlehem cheese, uh-huh. which is the cheese that Mother Noella pioneered. It's a Sonic Terre type cheese, and um, we make it in a wooden barrel. It is very... Uh, it's a very tactile and immediate experience of the cheese making process and we aged them in a cave a cellar on the on the land as well so and we also have a heritage breed of cows at the abbey as well so we're getting our milk fresh and we know what they're eating and everything so you you get the full cycle so as in a 
as an intern, I knew nothing about cheese making. I came in and I just wanted to learn about uh, food, food, uh, the food cycle on a monastic, in a monastic tradition. And um, the cheese making just, it, it really drew me in. Sure. Uh, monastery cheese has been being made forever. Some of my favorite cheese is monastic in nature. Uh, when I traveled through uh, northern France, especially uh, on the Belgian border, there are a lot of abbeys there, and a lot of the cheeses are made, you know, in the style uh, that the abbey produces. Do you find that you are effectively changing or helping the food system when you're making cheese? Does it make you feel that way? Well, I can say that my relationship with cheese actually started with cows. Really? Um, so, uh, yeah, I worked, I hand milked uh, when I was working as an intern at the abbey, and um, I first just fell in love with the experience, like the intimacy of being with a cow every day, and uh, it really deepened my gratitude for food because it comes from this animal, and it it comes out of this amazing relationship of trust where they mm. allow you to take the milk from them. Sure. Um, and so I kind of just, it, that sort of made me really grateful for the, for the milk, and I wanted to know, like, what happens next, you know? Sure. So it's going into these cheeses, um, and so it's kind of, uh, not a direct answer to your question, but I think that good food systems um, are, are happen when you have a relationship with the place where your food came from, Certainly. or the animal that your food came from, um, when you have a grateful relationship. And so I think that um, by knowing the cow, Hannah, that I get the milk from, that I make my cheese with, yeah. um, that I am participating in a better food system. You most certainly are. Are both of you from near to where the Abbey is? Um, well, we were born in New Jersey, and then we've kind of moved around since then. So Interesting. You used to work at Beecher's, correct? Yes. You were a cheesemaker there, or you helped in the cheesemaking process there? Yes, I did. I worked at Beecher's after uh, my internship at the Abbey, so I had this experience of very small scale uh, production of cheese that was my you know my first experience of cheese making and like I said I fell in love with that but I wanted to understand how it was done um, commercially so it was completely different at Beecher's but you know it still wasn't like industrial production still artisanal but on a very different scale and uh, that was, it was good for me to have those have those uh, different perspectives on the process before well, I decided to enter the Abbey and then become a, uh, a long-term cheesemaker there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Hello, doctor. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're not interrupting. I'm going to interview you as well, um, solo. Uh, okay. Yeah. We were just doing a little... A little preamble with the two sisters who are sisters and cheese making. Just priming sisters. you for Mother Noella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great to talk to you all. Um, I just have one more, one more question, and it's more of a. So your your sisters, did you find uh, your faith together? Were you always uh, devout, or did you come to that later? And then, how did cheese factor into that? Um. Well, we were raised Catholic, mm -hmm. so um, in that sense, we, I guess, had some kind of predisposition for a monastery, but um, uh, I'd say cheese um, 
is my favorite food. So, uh, and really a lot of our faith is about feeding and being fed. Right. Um, And so there's definitely an intersection there because I love to make cheese from the milk from cows that I know and then to know the people who are going to eat the cheese. Certainly. Um, I definitely think that that's a manifestation of my faith. That's Uh, fantastic. So I don't know what you... Yeah, um, well... How does cheese relate to my faith? I, I would say that the process very much to me is a concrete analogy for passion, death, resurrection, where you have to have... Preservation of life? Preservation of life. And of course, I mean, it's a natural process. So every analogy has a, you know, at some point you reach a limit in its Certainly. ability to open the mystery. But for me, every time I make the cheese and I'm breaking the curd apart and I wonder there's always this question is it going to come back together again certainly is it I mean I know it is that's the magic though right but then it it does and then you put it in the cellar and it's this vulnerable thing but the the um, controlled breakdown is so much I find it part of my spiritual life both before entering the abbey but certainly in a much more intense and conscious way um, entering into a religious community Fantastic. But for me, uh, cheese is memory. Um, it captures perfectly a time. Uh, for me, for me also, I'm always drawn back to earliest memories with cheese, uh, comforting memories uh, of my mom, my dad, or just of an environment that was bucolic and pleasant in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess in that way, even though I'm a classic heathen, you know. Um, I'm in touch with things um, outside of my world. Mm-hmm. So, well, I want to thank you gals for a little brief snippet there. And uh, stay tuned for more. We've got more interesting people to talk to. And uh, we'll be right back. Bye-bye. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh cheese curds. Or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company. The operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Welcome to Cutting the Curd, Mother Noella. Thank uh, you. It's, so it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for giving us a few minutes. Uh, this is Greg Blaze. We're broadcasting live from the Crown Finish Caves in uh, Bergen Street in Brooklyn. I just got through an amazing presentation about microbes and monastic cheese making and uh, and uh, the effects of uh, of climate and religion on our cheese making and and, uh, and our cheese mongering at the end of the funnel where I am 
So um, I really, uh, I really appreciated that, and thank you for enlightening me and all of us. You're welcome. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, though we haven't had you on as a guest yet, your work has inspired a, more than a few episodes from us. Uh, we had Frank Kite from Micro Dairy oh. Regions on. Desi- Micro Dairy Designs last year. Uh, you named your pasteurizer Francis after him. We certainly did. <laughs> Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I like to, to name machines as well. It makes them more human to oh, me. We always do that, and then we bless them. Yeah, you got it. That's you do. Fantastic. Um, it's really an honor to be able to chat with you and, and uh, to have heard your presentation. I wanted to start in, uh, by asking you about your perspective of the American cheese industry how it's grown and changed in the last 30 to 40 years, and how do you think we should continue to adapt and grow? Well, um, you know, I started making cheese myself uh, at our abbey with our raw milk, and we hand milk our cows um, in 1977. Nice. And at that time, uh, there were not many cheesemakers in Connecticut where we are at all. I think I was one, and then Calabro, which is mm-hmm. more uh, a much a bigger company, and um, that might so be it. I I think it was at the time, and uh, I was a cheesemaker, and I was sent off to the University of Connecticut. A few of us were for advanced degrees because we had developed a department in our abbey, and we wanted to be able to keep using traditional techniques, especially European techniques, which is part of our patrimony. Our roots were in France. And um, we thought maybe we needed the accreditation to do that professionally. Sure. Thank God we never knew what a long journey, arduous journey it would be. Yeah. But um, because I was making cheese while I was going to school and ran into a big problem of because of regulations and this hysteria outbreak in California in the late 80s, um, I was plunged into microbiology. And uh, when I think when I left for France on a Fulbright to do my graduate work in microbiology and in the biodiversity of cheese ripening fungi, um, still there were probably only two or three cheesemakers in Connecticut at the time. Sure. And that was like 1994. Mm-hmm. And um, Elizabeth McAllister had started in Colchester. Okay. She's a wonderful cheesemaker. You know. So uh, it was wonderful for me to start hearing what was going on. And when I came back, I, I had a Fulbright for nine months, and then the French National Agricultural Labs gave me a fellowship for three more years. Amazing. So um, I started hearing a little bit what was going on, but by the time I came back... Uh, and I went to an American Cheese Society meeting in Louisville, and it was um, I was giving a presentation, and I b- decided to bring microscopes because uh, I thought the cheesemakers w- might want to look at what was on their rinds. Sure, you know, because they were interested. See all those little bugs. Yeah, yeah, and I thought maybe we could just do this kind of live and look at fungi. And I thought, you know, I do an hour a day. Well, they, you know, we did it for hours I was each day. Say. Yeah, and um, at that point. I think there were maybe, uh, might have been 1999 or something, about 350 cheeses in the competition. Yeah, I remember that. I was a judge in 01. Okay. And it was a decidedly less, it was just less cheese. But to me, that was astounding. Yeah. All that cheese was being made in the U.S.? Yeah. Cheese and all cheese? Yeah. And now, I think this year, were there 1,800 or something to that? It's amazing. And uh, 
And my French colleagues, some of them, they would just scoff and laugh at me and say, Americans making cheese. Yeah, you know? I, I've dealt with that a lot. Yeah. And that was okay. It doesn't uh, I didn't bother care. me. No, no. But uh, it just, it was wonderful to see how serious the cheesemakers were. Sure. You know, and uh, to me, the, the give and take, the exchanges, uh, and I think, you know, in the Northeast, because of our weather patterns. Yeah, arable. Cheese is a value-added product. Absolutely. And small farmers who cannot make it, mm-hmm. you know, when fluid milk, it's a wonderful thing. Certainly. But it is hard work. It is. And only now, back in those, in 99 or so, I mean, the, the, the community, and I was a cheesemonger then, and so I, I saw it, and I always have been a proponent of American cheese. I, I loved to buy from people who, at the beginning, in the middle, in the end, mm-hmm. one of my favorite raw milk cheese producers in that time was Sally Jackson. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's a sad story. It is. And I feel like... Uh, that that operation could have benefited greatly, but it was ahead of its time. It was, you know. I remember when that happened. Um, that was amazing cheese. Let's just not, I mean, yes for those of us who know. Yeah, that was great cheese. Now I'd never had her cheese, but there was another case, the Estrella family. Yeah. in Washington, and I met them when I was out in Seattle for a cheese festival that I was speaking at. And at the time, you know, because it came up today at this. At our conference, I'm calling this a conference today. It's a little bit of a conference, cave. yeah, um, of the resistance, as yes, you uh, yes. referred to it. But also, you know, what do we need to do? How do we need to improve in terms of science and cheese making? I remember when um, what was going on with the Estrellas was getting so much publicity, and you know, talking about the FDA close blocking their caves and. And Kathy Don- yeah, and Kathy Donnelly, yeah, um, from UVM, an expert in Listeria monocytogenes, who became a real proponent of raw milk cheeses mm-hmm. um, and safety. She said, "Should the role of the FDA be closing them down or helping them?" And that's that's a question that still has not been answered today. Yeah, yeah. There's a huge disconnect. Yes. There's some things that have happened recently that made me make me ask those kind of questions. Where's the support for those yeah. people? And, and also sort of the proactive, you know, to get things in place that would hopefully help to have not have such serious outbreaks Certainly. as recently. Well, it's, it's interesting, and during your presentation you talked, and in the Q&A you talked about um, the states of people's immune system. Yes. And that, for me, I ate a lot of dirt when I was a kid, and yeah. I've been working with cheese for a long time. So if it doesn't kill me right up front, it's You're not okay. going to kill me. Good, you know? good. But um, I, I see that in uh, people are, are built out of fragile material sure. these days. And we have, you know, immunocompromised populations now. We, Besides we the elderly, um, HIV. I mean, there's so many immune diseases now. And... Uh, so much is unknown. It, it is. You know, but I think what people, uh, you know, some people say, why can't we have the choice and be able to make the choice of whether we want this world? And that's how choice, I feel. You know, I know that's um, the And they sort of, the government sort of does that, but then it propagandizes and, it, and you know, we live, we're fear-based culture yeah. at this point. Mm-hmm. So something that's been done for thousands of years, which is acidifying milk to sustain yourself. That's mm-hmm. what cheese is, it's preserving. Now, 
and we just we don't look at any of that history, but we look at the potential dangers of the future if you eat it. I see in my customers uh, a, a changed attitude. In 1999, mm. people were like, "Where's the good stuff? I want yeah. the illegal French stuff," you know. Yeah. And yeah. that nowadays people are like, "Is that?" Is well, that good for it, me? You know, it's funny. In, in about 1988, 99 and earlier, when there was an outbreak, cheese was immediately, you know, they pointed the finger at sure. cheese as the culprit. Well, because it makes Lord the less cheese. amount of money yeah. and it doesn't kill as many people as meat and fish. But has it not changed incredibly since then? Yes, it has. We're talking about lettuce, peppers, yeah. you know, um, hummus. <laughs> it's astounding. I think part. I think people are... The regu- regulators are probably so in deep and over their heads. I don't think they understand that they're, well, they're operating in a bubble. I don't think they probably have the personnel at this point. I right. don't know. They probably I don't. don't. Know. I agree but with I mean, all that. I, you know, it just ha- might have to all be revamped. I think it does, but I think it's important to draw some. I need to know clearly, while I understand uh, the effects of big government yeah. on the lesser the less important administrative bodies, you know, and how the, when they draw in the government, uh, as we're attempting to do right now, this current administration. Yeah. And, uh, I get that they have their battles to fight, but my battle is to protect the food system. Right. So I fall squarely on the side of these cheesemakers. Where's the help for them? Yeah. How, how do we sustain this wonderful yes. thing that you and I have been a part of for, for a long time? Yeah. And I, I do think it's going to take dialogue between scientists, academics. Yeah. And the cheesemakers, and then some of these bodies like the old ways. Yes. Um, I think Matteo Killer is a wonderful activist. Absolutely. For the cheese, no cheese. But again, I think, as I said in, in answer to a question someone brought up today, I people think I'm the big champion of raw milk cheese, and I am. But when they tell me, well, my grandfather drank raw milk, and sure. I say, but you're not your grandfather. And that's what I was referring to yeah. in terms of people's what your ability to process living culture or just live food in your mm-hmm. body. Yeah. So much of what people eat now is just jacked up with sodium, corn syrup, fillers, sawdust in certain <laughs> cheeses. Plastic. Yeah. 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 And, it's a, yeah. and also the microorganisms have changed. Yeah. And uh, ones that weren't problems before, they've now become so virulent. Right. You know, because the, much the, the microorganisms are, have gunned up. You know, they, they have armed yeah, well, themselves. Well, they've learned, you know, with this thing of transposons, um, with this, this exchange of genetic material that in, confers antibiotic resistance, yeah. even when the microorganism has never encountered the antibiotic. Sure. That was a staggering. That's, prim, that's like a you know, premonition find. that you can't. That's, that's craziness. So, you know, um, they're pretty smart. <laughs> so we don't want to be cavalier. That's the important no, thing. No, no, not at all. And I don't mean to be. I mean, I'll no, no, say no, inflammatory things, but I'm meticulous in my, my methods yeah. in, when I'm doing my work. Yeah. I'm an interesting, or I have a question that I wanted to ask you. Yes. Um, you know, I come, um, I'm not a religious man, but I come from a somewhat religious background, faith. You know, um, I was a Baptist uh, when I was a kid. Um, and, you know, you are a scientist in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um Yet you are obviously uh, a person of faith, of devout mm-hmm. faith, and you teach others. How do you reconcile science with with faith? In terms of, we had a gentleman downstairs that was talking about when the Earth was formed five billion years ago, then three billion years ago, mm-hmm. life life appeared in the form of the, these organisms. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I know the Bibles that I read mm-hmm. uh, told a very different story than that. Mm-hmm. So does that ever come up in your work? Do you ever I'm have not, a I'm crisis? I'm not a fundamentalist, you know. Sure. Uh, so I, you know, I hope what I communicated in my presentation was I don't see a dichotomy at all. That what I've learned in science just makes me stand back and wonder at God's creation. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and how little we know. And, uh, and again, as I tried to communicate... Um, being a Benedictine, I think we have a unique because his motto of the Benedictines is pray and work. Right. Um, it's a good motto for our, people like us. I think our life is so grounded in work mm. that gives us a chance to uh, read nature. We call it the book of nature and to see God in that. Yeah. And so you stand back and wonder at creation and God in creation and I think it it lifts you up to a higher power. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's really brilliant. Um, I had just uh, one more question. I should end there because yes. that was amazing. <laughs> but I, but I have one more. So, as I, I work for a company, you know, an Italian uh, company. Yes. And I've learned so much about um, about Italian history through food. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that I off, often reference in a course that I teach is. Um, the idea of cheese as currency, and I know that the Cistercian monks of Chiravale mm-hmm. used to trade Grana Padano as currency, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think there's a couple banks in Italy that still do that. That still license out, like the Bank of Unicredit in Emilia Romagna, you can get Parmigiano as a type of bond, you know. Wow. Um, and I wonder. Um, where you just where you stood on the history of that, or if you you know, it's not something I really know about. Uh, but um, I have heard of that certainly with the French cheeses. Sure. In, in the past. Sure. You know, and playing people paying their tithes in cheese. In cheese, it's, absolutely. Yeah, there's a great book that I read um, by Ken Follett called The Pillars of the Earth, mm-hmm. and in that there's a priory and a gentleman prior Philip, and whenever he has to go meet the bishops. Um, yes. If he needs, if he needs to get what he wants, then he needs to bring them a wheel of cheese Absolutely. from the priory. So maybe you, maybe you can see no. cheese as a currency. Exactly, and I think they would do the same with the kings. Yeah, you know, the kings had a certain cheese they loved. Yeah, and then that cheese became so famous because Louis the something loved it. Yeah, you know, that's brilliant. So. Cheese is a great history. Um, I'm just super happy to be a part of it. You know, and uh, coming to hear to hear folks like you speak and being amongst. My people makes me um, makes me super happy. So thanks for giving me your time today. Thank you very much. It's a wonderful group of people. These cheese people. Yeah, so. we're a little wacky, but we're good folks. I I think so. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks for listening, and uh, tune in later for more cutting the curve. Ciao. Ciao. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for more special interviews. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.